Elon Musk may get much of the attention, but the story of SpaceX hinges on a collection of key early figures. One of them is Tom Mueller, or SpaceX employee number one. It was in 2002 when I got introduced to Elon through the Rocket Club, actually. That's how I met Elon. And he wanted to do a launch vehicle company, so I was the first one to sign. Mueller ran propulsion at SpaceX, spearheading development of the Merlin rocket engine that powers the Falcon 9, and the Draco engines that power the Dragon spacecraft. He was critical to cracking the code on reusability, the model SpaceX has pioneered and uses to dramatically drive launch costs lower. Mueller retired from SpaceX in late 2020 to start his own company, Impulse Space, which is developing a space tug to capture some of the future business his former employer's new mega rocket is poised to unleash. Well, think of Starship as like a cargo ship, you know, coming into port. The port being just the specific orbit it goes into, typically low Earth orbit. And both, there's thousands of orbits, uh, even in low Earth orbit. You can go anywhere there. So it just goes to one place and lets 100 tons of payload out. And most of those guys are going to, if there's a whole bunch of them, like a rideshare mission, most of them are, are going to want to go somewhere else. And that's where we come in. We have a very highly propulsive, we have a lot of, a lot of impulse uh, on board, a lot of propellant, so that we can move them to other orbits. On this episode, the famed engineer details his new venture, reflects on his time at SpaceX, and outlines Impulse's own deep space ambitions. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Talk to me about Impulse Space uh, and, and the startup and what you're doing. Yeah, well, after I left SpaceX in 2020, I decided where the business is really at is is in space. You know, I mean, the whole point of, of SpaceX is to move payloads in, into space. And with, um, with Starship coming online, able to take 100 tons at a time, I realized there's going to be a huge opportunity for moving things around in space. So I started Impulse, which uh, builds uh, spacecraft, um, sort of like tugs in space that can move move cargo to different orbits. Uh, we, incorpor- so how- we incorporated it, uh, you know, in, in mid, mid-21, so we're almost two years old. And how far or how close, I should say, are you to having spacecraft in orbit? We have, we're building our flight spacecraft right now. We, we, we did all the tests on a prototype spacecraft and it passed, and now we're building the flight one and it's gonna launch on, on a Falcon 9 out of Vandenberg here on the West Coast in October. So, so getting- you're moving very quickly. Yes, it's getting really crazy here. <laughs> How are you able to move so quickly? Uh, you know, small team of very, very um, seasoned employees and motivated and, you know, just the SpaceX basically way of doing things. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so when I, when I think about space tugs, I think about maybe some of the other companies that are out there in this market, like a Momentus, for example. How do you, how do you compare? We're chemical propulsion, so we have higher thrust, which means things happen faster. Um, they're kind of electric propulsion, so they're very low thrust. It takes a long time to move. People are in a hurry in space, typically, to start getting revenue. And also, if you're somewhere, but you're, you're passing through the radiation belts, and if you hang out there a long time, uh, it tends to fry your, your avionics. So I think chem- chemical is the right place for us to start, but certainly electric uh, has its place, definitely. Yeah. How big is this market, do you think? Or do we even know yet? <laughs> there's there's predict, predictions. The one we have is like 8 billion by the end of the decade. But I, I think that 
I think that's conservative. I think that Starship's really going to change the paradigm. Yeah. Uh, we talk about Starship a lot on this podcast. I I'd bet. imagine you're probably watching that launch pretty closely. Absolutely. Um, I feel like I had something to do with Starship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I want to talk to you about that. Um, uh, but I guess just a little bit more first on, on impulse space specifically. Um, when you when you do talk about Starship potentially changing the paradigm and 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 opening this market up in a bigger, broader way, um, how I guess how how are you thinking of those possibilities? Well, think of Starship as like a cargo ship, you know, coming into port. The port being just the specific orbit it goes into, typically low Earth orbit. And both there's thousands of orbits, uh, even in low Earth orbit. Um, I mean, you can go anywhere there, um, and so it just goes to one place and lets a hundred tons of payload out. And most of those guys are going to, if there's a whole bunch of them, like a rideshare mission, most of them are, are going to want to go somewhere else. And that's where we come in. We have a very um, highly propulsive, we have a lot of, lot of impulse uh, on board, a lot of propellant so that we can move them to other orbits. And so as we do see more things, and I really, you know, you just said thousands of orbits, but as we do see the commercialization of low Earth orbit, for example, and we do see more types of spacecraft, both much smaller than we've seen historically and also much bigger when you start thinking about things like commercial space stations, um, I, I guess, what, what does that mean in terms of how big or how large your spacecraft are going to be to be able to service all of this? Right now, uh, you know, it's been for a while, it's been small spacecraft. Um, I think they're starting to get bigger, like, like you know, like even like the, the Starlinks now are, are much bigger because they're going to start going on Starship, um, the, the version two. Um, I think when you do a, G, a LEO constellation with a whole bunch of satellites, they can be pretty small. But but when you go to, to, to geosynchronous orbit um, way out there where you're always at the same spot in the sky, like where you'd point your direct TV dish, um, that those will probably tend to be bigger. There's yeah. only so many spots there, so you want to put as much bandwidth as possible there. How many spacecraft do you think, or how many space tugs do you think uh, you're gonna you're gonna have in orbit after you get this first one up in October? Um, when I get that asked that question, I usually just say <laughs> we should be like SpaceX and Tesla early days. We can't make them fast enough. We can sell them fast, and we can make them. And that's I think after we launch the first one, that that could happen. Are you already talking to interested parties and, and customers? Oh, absolutely, yeah. A lot of interest in Mira. We, we Okay, we're on Transporter 9, uh, which is the Falcon 9 going here in October. We're also on 11 and 12 next year and looking to start book, booking further out. Um, and we've got lots of potential customers we're talking to on those, on those booked flights. Very cool. Now, I know you also recently announced that you're partnering with Relativity for the first ever commercial landing on Mars as well. Yeah. You're looking to beat SpaceX to that. <laughs> it, it might be a it might be be a race, yeah. Um, so you, so you you have a vision that involves Mars as well. I do. I mean, I, I'm more about the moon, but um, certainly relativity is all about Mars. And they came to me and said, you know, where we want to do this audacious mission for the first flight of their new vehicle, the Terran R. And they said, would you be willing to build the spacecraft? And I said, absolutely. So that would be a perfect job for us to do something, something difficult that, that, you know, sets our standard. Very cool. And, and when do you think you can do this? We missed the 24 opportunity because we just weren't ready. Um, so we're going in 26, late 26. 
is the next opportunity. You can only go to Mars when it's on the same side as the sun as the earth. So it's uh, the next opportunity will be, uh, it's like every every 2.2 years. So, so this might be a really basic question, but how does that work? When you're talking about the first commercial landing on the red planet, I mean, are both the companies self-funding this mission or are other folks involved? We're hoping to get some cargo, some paid cargo, but um, on a first mission, especially when you land on Mars, which uh, has been historically very difficult, it's, it's, it's hard to get people to sign up. Uh, hopefully we can get some paid. Otherwise, yeah, we're, we're self-funding it. Wow. And it is historically difficult. Um, but you've done a lot of things that are historically difficult or that were said couldn't be done. So I wonder how you're, how you're gaming out the risks and those levels of difficulty now with this. Well, that's true, Morgan. My whole career almost, or certainly my career since I started SpaceX has been, you can't do that. So I love to hear that because uh, we prove them wrong and it's, it's fulfilling. But going to Mars, we're, we're, the hard part is, is what's called EDL, entry, descent, and landing. I remember those seven minutes of terror. Um, NASA has figured that out and done it many times. So we are using exactly the shapes of the aeroshell, the exact same parachute and mortar, the same stuff. All the EDL, um, we're copying or doing what NASA did because it's proven. It's just the lander that comes out of that aeroshell and lands that's pretty custom that, that we build. Hmm. And also the crew, the crew stage that uh, that gets us there. It's kind of like a like a mirror spacecraft that, that points us to Mars and gets us to hit the target there. Got it. You mentioned you're, you're more excited about the moon. Why? Well, I, I think it's great that that Elon cares about Mars and a lot of people care about the moon. So both get serviced. But the moon has basically all the resources that we have on Earth. It has it has water, it has minerals, it, you know, it has all kinds of chemicals that are in the um, that are in the shadowed craters at the poles. So I think when people when we start developing the space economy in low Earth orbit, and we're taking material up from the surface of Earth. It doesn't take very long where people realize it's twenty, literally twenty times easier, energy-wise, to take it from the surface of the Moon because the gravity well is so much smaller. That um, that that will become a thing. So uh, I I think that's just to offload the resource use of Earth, use, utilizing the Moon and you know near Earth uh, asteroids also will become important in the future. Mm. It almost becomes so. It almost becomes like a natural resource play. Is that the is that the way to think about it? Absolutely, yeah. That's fascinating. So let's talk a little bit. I do want to talk a little bit about your background, your incredible background in all things propulsion and, and rocket science. Um, so maybe you could just take me through uh, through a little bit of your tenure at SpaceX, especially as we did see that recent Starship launch, and you did have something to do with it. Oh, uh, sure. Well, I was, you know, I was at. Um, TRW, which is actually just a couple blocks from our office here for 15 years where I learned rocket propulsion. And I was also uh, doing amateur rocket stuff out in the desert uh, since 1990. And it was in 2002 when I got introduced to Elon through the Rocket Club, actually. That's how I met Elon. And he wanted to do a launch vehicle company. So um, I was the first one to sign. Because I, I said yes, so I ended up being employee number one in, in payroll because I signed first. And uh, we started off, um, even before we incorporated the company, we already pretty much had the Falcon 1 architecture. We're going to have a single first stage engine, you know, about, about 60, 50, 60,000 pounds of thrust that could throw one ton of payload to orbit, like basically small launch, like, like many companies are trying to do today, small launch. So uh, that's how we started out. 
I wonder what you think of uh, of the proposition of small launch versus some of these uh, heavy lift um, rockets that are now under development. Because it does seem like there is this market shift that's happening. Yeah. For all of these other startups that you know we're gonna we're gonna tar target small small launch and oh actually maybe maybe the market's not quite as enticing as we thought it was. Um, I think that the market was more enticing a few years ago, but with SpaceX doing rideshare so much cheaper than small launch. But rideshare doesn't always go where you want to go. It goes to one orbit, like this one we're going up by is going to 525 kilometers sun synchronous. Some of the guys want to go to other places. So that's where small launch comes in. But it's, you know, you can do rideshare for a couple of like, couple million dollars and it's going to it's going to be like, you know, 15 to fly on a small launch. So using a space tug, we can now take them where they want to go without having to, um, you know, buy a whole rocket. So it is it has become a, a difficult value prop proposition for the small launch guys. Hmm. I guess I, I do want to talk to you a little bit more about propulsion and about what you're able to do in terms of designing some of these rocket engines at SpaceX that were and are unlike anything we have seen in the marketplace. Well, I think it's kind of irrefutable now that uh, the Falcon 9 is the most reliable launch vehicle in history. It's flown more times without failure than any other rocket. And it's got 10 Merlins on it every time it flies, which is an engine that, that I designed and my team developed. So I'm pretty proud of it. It's just really cool. And I used to always worry, you know, or in the early days that there was going to be a, a failure when we flew. I don't even worry about it anymore. It's like the things this seems so reliable. Um, then I was I, I worked on Raptor also on my design, which is the Starship engine, and it was uh, it was actually burning hydrogen and oxygen when we first designed it, and then we kind of found out that uh, I found out that when when you're on Mars, if you have hydrogen, you can easily almost for free make methane with it, and there's actually eight times the mass of methane for so for every pound of hydrogen, you get eight pounds of methane it's a heavier molecule. So it basically was twice as efficient cost-wise to use methane as hydrogen. So I switched the engine to, to, to methane. And then I was working on power on Mars, how to, how to make propellant to get back. So I kind of let the guys develop the, the, the Raptor engine. So it's, it's not my baby. And I had stepped down as VP at that time. So I, I can't claim that I, that I developed the, the Raptor, but I'd certainly, um, you know, hired and, and developed a team that built the, built the Raptor that initially did it anyway. And now to see like version three of that thing running at the highest chamber pressure ever yeah, is pretty crazy. And, and to see, you know, the, that rocket take off with 33 of them on the first stage, pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Um, I want to hear you talk about that. I'm, how close are we just as, as a civilization, how close are we to cracking the code on what it's going to take to, because that's ever, what everybody talks about. Once you go to Mars, at least initially, you're not going to be leaving Mars. So if we come, are we coming closer to cracking the code on what it's going to take to actually see, see some sort of return? To Mars? Yeah. Or to the moon? From Mars, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. well, I think, yeah, I, I think we're within a decade of putting the first people on Mars. And I think it will probably be SpaceX with Starship. Um, Elon's, you know, just dedicated to that. Um, and also, you know, within hopefully by the end of this decade, we'll have uh, people on the moon again, too. So I, I really feel like like kind of like SpaceX got the party started in, in the second space age. And, and I mean, the, the real space age, I want this one to stay, you know, where people are, are going to stay in space, not just uh, go visit and go plant a flag. So I'm pretty proud of that, you know, that, that kind of shift that, that started with 
I mean, other, other companies tried to do commercial um, launch vehicles and failed, but we were the first ones to be successful. And a lot of people have kind of followed the formula now. So uh, now there's competition and access to space is back, you know, the, the number one company with access to space back in the US again. Pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, we often make the case that if if it wasn't for SpaceX, we'd be begging Putin to get to our space station right now. What's your vision? Long long term, what do you envision uh, the space economy becoming? I I want to see manufacturing in space, offloading the resource uses uh, on, on the planet Earth. Like a good example is compute, especially now with AI coming on strong, crypto. Um, it's predicted that the amount of power just to run compute by about 2045 will be equal to all the power we use right now on the planet. And imagine and it's going up exponentially. So at some point, it's going to make more sense to do compute in space, to just build giant solar fields in space and use that power and computers basically on, on spacecraft in space and, and, and then beam down the results. So just do your AI in space and then beam the results down to offload. I don't know when that's going to happen. I think that's way out there, but um, that's part of it. And just um, there's certain things, uh, drugs and chemicals and materials that can only be made in microgravity. That's going to happen. And then once that starts happening in low Earth orbit, that's when I think the moon is really going to get developed because there's water. There's you know perhaps billions of tons of water in the in the in ice in the poles, and with water you can make propellant. And the nice thing about that propellant, if you use hydrogen and oxygen, is it is it tends to burn more fuel rich, so it leaves excess oxygen when you make it. So you have, you have oxygen to breathe for people. So it's really quite an amazing resource to have, you know, on on the moon. As I hear you talk about this longer term vision, what does it mean in terms of the longer term vision for Impulse? Space tugs right now, but but years down the road, what's involved? Yeah. The space tug, like the Mira space tug that we're about to fly, I consider like our Falcon One. We're it's we're learning to be a spacecraft company, how to navigate, how to how to how to how to um, get around in space, and how to survive the radiation environment. But we also have another product coming along later that's going to be our prime mover that can go to the moon, that can that can go to you know geosynchronous orbit, which is out there at thirty six thousand kilometers. So we can do these very high energy things and, and really go anywhere in the solar system with that. So that's that's where we're headed. And it's hard to say right now what the killer apps are going to be. This is kind of like the internet in the 1990s. Nobody knew what it was going to be. So I think space is there's a lot of development to go on commercially in space. Mm. Um, in terms of in terms of the actual building up of the company, uh, is it? I mean, are you self funding? Have you reached out? Are you engaged with the investment community? Are VCs backing you? Yeah, we we raised a, a seed round and funded it about a year ago um, 30 million and we're we're um, starting on our we're in, into our series a right now that's great fundraise yeah have you have you found that there's been a real shift in the investment community uh more more excitement and more uh understanding and openness to investing in this sector well there was a year ago <laughs> and there still is yeah uh, absolutely um space is is really big but but now it's like a year ago, just about anybody could get funded, and they did. There's a lot of space companies out there that are going to fail. I, I feel like they they just didn't have the, the stuff. Now, the investors are much more careful in picking out the ones that, that are more likely to be a, a winner. So it's, it's definitely a lot harder to get funding now everywhere, um, but um, certainly uh, 
it's it's I think we're we've got a really experienced team and our seat is a front runner, so we're able to get funding. Yeah, the, the other side of this, the other piece of this puzzle, I should say, um, is the is the talent pool, and it does seem like. Uh, with all the success of a SpaceX. And you could argue too, with Blue Origin being around for several decades, these are these are sort of the two original space startups that are now minting other entrepreneurs that are yep. going out and starting companies. And, and yeah. I wonder what you, what you think that's done in terms of uh, the available talent that's out there and the excitement of newer generations coming into this field. It's great because now engineers uh, and scientists coming out of school want to go work in space. So we just, we're just building up this, this whole economy and, you know, in this area here and over in El Segundo, you, you can't throw a rock in El Segundo without hitting a, you know, a building, a, a company that was an ex-SpaceX person. There's just so much talent out there that started at SpaceX and, and other companies too, like the Origin. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by following us wherever you get your podcasts and by watching our coverage on Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan.